0: ...to great lengths to rescue lost and hurting people. That's what the story is all about. The story of the Bible, God's great love affair with humanity. you're here today and so if you're a first-time guest with us we are grateful that you're here maybe you're returning this is second third fourth week and uh if you haven't left your information with us we we would love that because it helps us minister to you because we really want to partner with you in your spiritual growth partner with uh your family and and teaching your children and so it's important for us to connect and the only way we can do that is to is to to have some contact information so if you haven't done that please do We're in the fifth week of the story, and today we're talking about commandments, and so uh, if you haven't picked up a story Bible, uh, we encourage you to do so. You can pre-read what I'll be talking about each chapter, and so this week we're in chapter five, and so between now and next week, you can read chapter six, and you kind of know where we're at. These are five bucks. If you don't have five bucks, just take one. Don't worry about it. We want you to grow in your spiritual maturity and know God's story, and so if you're just checking in with us, it's the first week we've been going through the Bible in a chronological manner, looking at God's upper story, and then finding our connection point to that in our lower story, finding where those connect, and, and, uh, and understanding the big picture of God redeeming mankind. All of us have probably had the experience of stepping into a new environment and the anxiousness that goes with that. Maybe it's uh, when you went from junior high to high school or high school to university or you moved into a new neighborhood or you took on a new job, uh, getting uh, married and meeting uh, the family for the first time, the other side, right, and meeting all the outlaws, I mean in-laws. Or maybe it's like today, you're walking into a church and you're like, Someone told me to come to this church and as you turn into the parking lot and you see the building and you see people walking in and like you don't know anybody, you don't know what to expect and like are they handling snakes and throwing up chickens or something like that, you know, like you don't know what, what's going to be going on in there, right? (coughs) Well, next week is snakes and chickens, but uh, just joking, just joking. I mean, we've all had that experience, haven't we not, where where we've stepped into a new environment and we don't know what the expectations are, we don't know what the unspoken rules are, we might not know what the protocol is to get something done or ask a question, get it answered, and so all of us understand that. And so where we're at in the story is God is moving back into the neighborhood of the nation of Israel, Uh, actually moving back into the neighborhood of mankind, if you will, see, we started out in the garden, which is where you should start when you start with talking about God's story. And in the garden, there was this place uh, that God and dwell, uh, God and man would dwell. And each evening, God would walk with man. But sin broke that relationship and separated man from God. And so God is now going to orchestrate this, uh, this uh, his plan of redemption by raising up Israel, whom the Messiah will come through, and they will become announcers as to who God is. And so can you imagine, in your neighborhood, you get a card one day, and it says, God, I'm coming to move in beside you. <laughs> like, I don't know, you're probably out cutting your grass, you know, you're picking up the beer cans or whatever, you know, I'm just joking. Uh, maybe I'm not. Uh, so, a- anyway, uh, you have those moments where you like, kind of getting cleaned up. Well, this is what's taking place. God's moving back into the neighborhood, and it's going to cause uh, a lot of anxiousness especially on Israel's part. Now, now, for God to do this, for God to move in beside Israel, for God to, to come right into the very center of their lives, three things have to be in place for that to work. And so here's what they are. For God to have fellowship uh, with them requires relationship expectations, and so that's a word that I'm using today for commandments. A place for God to dwell... And we'll talk about the tabernacle and a way to deal with sin. And so these three things have to be in place for there to be a, a healthy relationship that will flourish. What's interesting about these three principles that, that exist for a relationship is this is what we talk about in premarital counseling. So imagine a young couple coming to me and they're saying, hey, we want to get married. Would you officiate? And I said, yeah, but we have to do this counseling first. And so uh, in doing that, they learn all kinds of things about themselves and themselves together. And so uh, one of the things we talk about are expectations. And so uh, there's a, a personality survey that's conducted, and, and, and they see the results, and, and they begin to see where they line up and where they haven't talked about certain expectations. Like, for instance, uh, say this young couple, they're talking about uh, their first Christmas and Thanksgiving together as a couple. And they've started this new family, right? And uh, she's always spent Christmas morning in her family, and and he's always spent it with his. And now they have to have the conversation, well, where are we going to be, you know? And then they have to talk about how they're going to raise their kids one day, and, and they're going to have to talk about, like, uh, uh, wh- how they're going to work through uh, the, the financial, financial issues and those types of things. And so there's all types of expectations that have to be uh, talked about for them to... Uh, to feel comfortable in this relationship. And the more you can talk about that ahead of time, the better it is when that situation arises. The second thing we talk about is where they're going to live. And so, you know, they're starry eyed and in love, you know, and they're just holding hands the whole time and all the time. You know, and you're like, oh, I'm going to throw up. No. Uh, so, I'm uh, just joking. They, <coughs> you know, like, well, where are you going to live? Like, how are you going to stay out of the rain? And so, they, you know, we talk about the actual ongoings of having a a good home like there's some practical things that have to be thought through and executed for us to have a place to live and then the big one the time that we spend the majority of the time talking about how to resolve conflict because you know and I know couples argue and studies have been shown that couples that argue and fight well last a long time maybe the whole length of their their marriage existence uh, couples that don't talk about what's going on inside of them, that's a toxic relationship. If, if, you're not, if you don't know how to talk about your expectations uh, to another person, then that, that causes a lot of breakdown over time. But when people have conflict and they know the skills to talk about that, it can build intimacy because conflict, handled well, builds intimacy. And so, so, anyway, when we talk about God moving into the neighborhood, when we talk about our own lives of two people coming together, there have to be three things, at least, laid out. Relationship expectations, a place to live, and how we deal with the sin issue when it comes to God. And so this is what we're talking about today. Now, um, God is entering into like a, a marriage relationship with Israel. He's actually calls Israel in the Old Testament his bride and and now in Jesus if you're a Christian you know that Christ is the husband we're the bride the church and so there's this intimacy and and so just like in marriage counseling after we talk a lot about the details we talk a lot about the mechanics of how to get a good good relationship I'm always asking the question at some point in the conversation how did you all meet how did you fall in love why do you love each other and so they begin to share, you know, well, you know, uh, we bumped into each other in the library and it just hit off from that, you know. And, then, and they often not tell you about how the planned uh, 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 proposal was done, and, 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 and those are always interesting stories. And, and so so what God does before he tells them his expectations for them, which we're calling the Ten Commandments today, he tells them how much he loves them. And we read about that in Exodus 19. So God, speaking through Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people responded together we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. I want you to say that phrase with me. If, and and, and, and uh, so if you don't believe this, that's okay. You don't have to say anything. But you'll probably feel awkward enough when everyone else is saying it around you. And you'll say it anyway. But we're going to say it together. We're going to say these words. We will do everything the Lord has said. Say it with me. We will do everything the Lord has said. Now we say that and we're like, yes, especially when we're like, just getting plugged into God and getting plugged into Jesus and reading the Bible, like, man, I I want this. I want this life. I want this connection with my Creator. And I want, I want to get in touch with my spiritual self. And I want to work through these questions I have about life and purpose and why suffering happens and all that type of stuff. And so, so we have that experience, but you and I both know, just like Israel, they all fail along the way. And so... That's what this big story in the Old Testament's about, and it points to a lot of associations, a lot of parallels in our own life. So anyway, uh, here's this nation: between two and three million people walk out of Egypt. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And they're going to be told that they are not created by the demigods of Egypt, but they were created by God as the last part of his creation. And they are actually at the apex of creation, and all the universe has been presented for them to live in. And they've never heard that before. You know something else they didn't hear? They didn't hear there was a beginning. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, all the civilizations that we know about had this view of existence of life, that it was a circle. And if you watch The Lion King, you hear the song, right? And, and, and so they didn't understand that there was a beginning. And they didn't understand that there was an end. And when you have a beginning and you have an end, you have purpose. And so all of this was brand new information. them. you mean life's not random? You mean life's not by chance? No, life is by design. And there's an intelligent designer, and his name is Yahweh or God. And so they get they're hearing all of this. And this nation brought out of Egypt was facing genocide. They were going to be exterminated by Pharaoh eventually because Pharaoh saw them as a threat. And now they're the most treasured possession and they will be the nation that brings Jesus and salvation to the world. And that's a pretty awesome thing. And so uh, this transformation for them, like for us, will require discipline and time. Discipline and time. Because following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction. And so the expectations are this. They're laid out from Mount Sinai. We call them the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if you were set out with a task of forming a community of people, a nation of people, like you're gonna, there's a war-torn nation, and you're tasked with a job by your government to go and set up shop there and help these people live together, was this is where was this where you would start? Well, of course you would. You would begin to lay out what the expectations were of of people, and so everyone would have the same understanding. Now just think if our society could follow these commandments, how few other laws we really need. Like we're a litigious society. We keep making up laws because because Americans and mankind in general has lost her moral compass. We've lost what true north is. And so now instead of people being governed by moral virtue that lives within them, designed by their creator to be obeyed, they're having to do, they want to do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want. Now we have to create all these laws. Because now people are not governed by love anymore. They're governed by what's the least I have to do or what's the most I can get away with. It's just amazing to me that this body of law would be enough to govern a society that starts out at about 3 million. If they just follow these. Now, The first four deal with man's relationship with God, all right? The last six deal with relationship between people. And so we start out with this first one, You shall have no other gods before me. As I said before, they had worshipped all kinds of gods in Egypt. Now they're brought out to an understanding that there's only one true God, and He's the one shaking Sinai. He's the one that parted the sea and brought them out of Egypt. And He says, You can't have any other gods before me. Now, this is going to be a problem for Israel for the next couple thousand years. They're going to struggle with this one command. And if they could just get this one command down, the rest would fall into place pretty simply, pretty easily, actually. And so we call this top-button theology. Now, I'm not going to embarrass myself, and hopefully I won't embarrass my wife, but if I would uh, unbutton my shirt, which I'm not because I don't want anyone, you know, to get embarrassed, especially me, Uh, and I was to start buttoning my shirt, and I'll I'll start down here, and I'll move it up here, right? If I start in the middle, and I try, I think that's a top button, I've got a messed up, I've got a messed up shirt, right? All right, I don't want to need my chest hair or gold chains to come out here, okay? All right, (laughs) some of you just really, TMI. All right, so (laughs) the point is this, that if you can get this one one law if you have one expectation down that God wants to enter into a relationship with you that's on the same level as husband and wife, actually above that. That he wants a, a a relationship that that is that is so pure and so dedicated to like like two people who love each other, then you have no problem with that. And so God asked them to to come into a relationship with him, so that they might have relationship relationships that can flourish with each other. Now, God has kept His promise with Abraham. So, if you were here before, you know that God had promised Abraham He would have descendants as numerous as the sands, uh, stars in the sky, and the sands on the ocean shore. And like, and so God's kept His promise. They're a huge nation. Now, God wants. Israel to keep a promise to him that they will be in this love relationship with him and that they would be pure and holy. Now, our sin nature makes us bristle at anyone telling us what to do. It's my house. It's my car. It's my time. It's my job. It's my paycheck. It's my kids. It's my food. It's my diet. It's my whatever, right? And we're like, it's me, me, me. And we, because of uh, a, a lot of uh, things that are going on in our culture, we're, we're, we're progressing so fast towards a meism, i I-me-only kind of world. And so this is really challenging. But, but the idea that, that God can tell us what to do and us not bristle up is, is a real challenge. It's like a little girl who, who's, whose mom says, Uh, All right, because you've disobeyed, I want you to sit in the corner and put your nose against the wall and sit down and stay there until I tell you to get up. And so she does that, but she turns around and says to her mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You're not telling me what to do, right? That's how we are. And so it's just our human nature. It's our fallen nature. And so, you know, some some of you moms out there are like, it's my kid. And so, so anyway, uh, there is this. Uh, they're, they're these, they have to promise to obey him, and this will bring them life. The reason there are rumble, rumble, not rumble, rumble strips on the side of the road, and there's guardrails is to keep you from dying, to wake you up if you fall asleep. God has put boundaries in our life so that we might have a good life, an abundant life, and with, since he's the creator and he knows the problems that exist his laws are life and so when you feel yourself bristling up ask God say all right I'm trying to humble myself and get this down right like just calm down and think it through and and I think you'll find that his laws are actually bringing life now back to our story so Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai and it's covered by thunder and lightning and 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 clouds and he's up there for a while. And the nation of Israel down below, they get worried that he's not coming back. As a matter of fact, this God that's shaking the mountain is kind of spooking them. And they get get very worried. And so they come to Aaron, who's Moses' right-hand man, if you remember the story. and, And they say, Aaron, we need someone to lead us now because Moses isn't coming back. And Aaron, feeling threatened says, okay, take your gold off your jewelry and I'll melt, melt this down and I'll fashion for us a god to follow. And so he fashions for them a cow god that they were familiar with in Egypt called Apis. And so uh, when Moses shows up, he hears a party on the patio and he is not excited about it. And he, and, 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 uh, he says, uh, Aaron, what's going on? And Aaron said, they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. This is the funniest verse in the whole Old Testament. If you're not laughing, you're not paying attention. Because your kids have told you that you told your parents this. They walked into the room. The room's a disaster. There's a pizza on the ceiling. What happened? I don't know. Right? Right? out popped the pizza you know i mean this is this is how it is you know it's so funny Aaron's like "I, i put the gold in and a calf came out it's not my fault moses is furious he is so angry that they would depart from trusting god explicitly like they didn't stop and pray they didn't try to work through it they've witnessed all these miracles in one of our small groups, when we were talking about this, someone said, I can't understand why they gave up on God so quickly. They just went through the Red Sea. The dirt of the bottom of the Red Sea is still stuck to their sandals. And they've given up on God so quickly. Why I think that happened, there's probably multiple reasons, but I think they're afraid. They, they don't have this deep relationship with God yet. They're fearful of what might happen now. They're on their own. They they're surrounded. They have no no way to protect themselves. They're surrounded by enemies, right? It's not going to take long for the enemies to figure out that they don't have any protection, you know. So they're they're afraid. Has this happened in your spiritual walk with God? We're like, you know, you, you find this connection point, like it's this moment of salvation, maybe it's your baptism, maybe it's like you're, you come to like a, a Christian, con- there's this moment where you're like, I am so sold out on the Lord, like I want to follow God. And then like two weeks later, there's divorce papers, a diagnosis, or your financial state that goes in room and you get a job. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen to us, and we get a little nervous, and so we fall back on the God that was leading us before, which, you know, it could be alcohol, it could be your friends, it could be like some weird philosophy you picked up somewhere. And, and like we fall back on those things pretty quickly because like we're like, is God really going to show up? Well, he really will show up and God is merciful. And so though he brings judgment to this rebellion, 3,000 will die Because of this rebellion, the Levites go from tent to tent and put a sword through the people who led this rebellion. So 3,000 people will die on the day this covenant and these commandments were given. But God is going to forgive the nation of Israel. After judgment will come this extension of grace. And Moses is the one who's the intercessor. So we've talked about this term, but I'll speak it again, foreshadowing. So there's something in the Old Testament that's pointing to something in the New Testament. Here Moses is going to foreshadow the work of Jesus. And we read about this in Exodus 34. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. The Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation of the world. And the people who live among you will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going. This is Canaan. Or they will be a snare among you. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Who do you worship? Jealous. Why? Because God wants an intimate relationship, a relationship based on love with the people who believe in him. That's what he wants. That's his desire. God never intended our faith to be like you come to church and you go home. Like that was never the design. And so so God says, I want this intimate relationship with you. Now, why is this such a risk for God? They've been worshiping all these demigods in Egypt. They've been going out after date, after date, after date, getting in bed with person after person after talking about the gods. And God's like, look, I'm willing to take you on as my bride. I'm willing to take you on, but you're going to have to be just true to me. And so God's taking a big risk. And so in taking this risk, God lays out a plan for them to coexist. And it starts with, A clear understanding of expectations. Next, God is going to need a place to live. And we call that the tabernacle. And so this place where God will dwell will be right at the center of Israel's existence. Again, there's two to three million people in tents. And they are encamped around the tabernacle, which is the very center point of their camp. And so you have three tribes on each side, totaling twelve. And their tent doors are facing the tabernacle. So the first thing you get up when you walk out, as you look and you see the smoke or, or the fire, depending on if it's day or night, coming up, that's the first thing you see in the morning. The last thing you see before you retire in your tent is the tabernacle. Do you get it? God's at the center point of their existence. And so this tabernacle is foreshadowing the church. It's going to point to the church. Just I have to run through this briefly, but there's so much stuff that we could talk about when we talk about the furnishings of the tabernacle. And you can read about this in the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's in the New Testament. And if you need some help finding that, just come up to me later and say, show me where this stuff is explained. But I'm going to walk through it. So the out. The outside of the tabernacle is called the courtyard, and it represents the world. The space was 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, and it was a curtain that was, oh, eight, nine feet high. And so there was one entrance, and it was the main entrance. But when you walk in there, that represented the world. It's where the world exists. To go into the holy place and the most holy place, the first thing you have to come by is the brazen altar and that's where the sacrifices were given so they would burn pieces of animal on the brazen altar in the morning in the evening and that's why men like barbecue because it's a joke but i'm just saying that there was this this lovely smelling meat smoke ascending into heaven and so i can't wait for heaven i wonder what god's barbecue is going to be like but Y'all are laughing at me. Wait till you see it. You're like, yeah. All right. So anyway, um, uh, what I'm trying to say is like you couldn't go any further until you came first to the brazen altar. And this is where the sacrifice was made. And that's pointing to the cross of Christ, where Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all mankind and will be consumed by the wrath of God because his wrath comes upon himself so that it doesn't have to come upon us. The next thing you come to is the, 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 the laver. And so the laver is this basin that's filled with water. The bottom of the laver is lined with mirror-polished metal, so it reflects heaven above. And the priests can't go into the holy place unless they first ceremonially wash. And that points to our baptism, that you can't come into the church, you can't come into Jesus until you first come past the cross and then the waters of baptism. When you go into the holy place, this is a section that's uh, 15 by 30, all right? Uh, There are three pieces of furniture in there. To the right is a table of showbread. It has 12 loaves on it. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel. The priests come in there once a week and consume that bread. Every week, when we come together, we have the Lord's Supper to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. Hmm. The table of showbread is foreshadowing communion. To the left is the candelabra. This, was, uh, this is the piece of furniture that, that it's a candlestick, basically, right? And it's burning olive oil, and it illuminates the space in the holy place. Oil, olive oil throughout the Old Testament is representative of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So prophet, priest, and king were anointed with oil on their head. And it was a representation that, that, that the Spirit of God is resting on this individual to for some special service. And so this candelabra is illuminating that space. And we read in the Bible in places of Psalms like God's Word is a lamp unto my path, Right? And so so it's illuminating that space. And then right in front of you is the altar of incense, a small table with a special incense that never stopped burning. And it represented the prayers of the saints. And it would it would smoke up and go through the veil into the most holy place, which we'll talk to in just a minute. And 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 it was it was it was to never go out because of the prayers of the saints or to never stop. Behind the veil. Now the veil, the veil, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the veil is represents the Garden of Eden. And the separation between man and, and, and God. And so it's got it's got embroidered on it uh, uh, angels, embroidered in gold thread, and, and, and images of the garden with certain types of plants. And so when you go behind the veil, which only happened once a year, the Day of Atonement, their New Year's Day, when the sins of Israel were atoned for by the blood of the sacrifices, the priests would go in there, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's no candelabra in there because it's illuminated by the Shekinah glory of God. So it must have been very intimidating to walk into this space. It's only 15 by 15 by 15. And so he walks in there, and he offers up the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. We call that the seat of propitiation. And I'm like, what is that? Well, this is a really cool word that you can wow your friends tomorrow at work by the coffee pot. Hey, I learned about the (sighs) seat of propitiation. What? What? That's where the sacrifice, sacrificial blood was splattered to represent the atoning sins of Israel. Inside the ark were three things. The Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, a, a jar of manna that never spoiled, and Aaron's staff or, or rod that w- 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 had buds on it, and it, it, it nev- those buds, those flowers never stopped, never died. And so this, these were very significant things. We not have time to talk about all that. But there was the presence of God. Now, all of this is foreshadowing what you're in right now at this moment. All of this was constructed so that you could better understand your faith in God. All of this has purpose and meaning to our own existence in Christ. And then the the last thing that we talked about had to be in place was a way to deal with sin. Now, if you pick up the story Bible and you turn to page 70... You'll read a summary of the book of Leviticus, and that's what the, I'm going to read to you right now. This isn't the scripture. This is a summary of the way to deal with sin. During that, uh, during the year that the Israelites were camped near Mount Sinai, God taught them who he was and what was required of them. I am holy, so you are to be a holy people, or you are to be holy. God instructed his people to bring specific offerings to the tabernacle. The line of the priests was anointed, and an intricate system of animal sacrifices was instituted for the atonement Of the people's sins. Now, if one of your favorite books of the Bible is Leviticus, you're really disappointed right now, (laughs) because this is a summary of a book that represents how they get right with God. Like when they fail, how they come back, and each one of these sacrifices is deep with imagery pointing to our salvation, which we don't have time to talk about. But uh, it's important that us understand that these this last component, a way to deal with a conflict was laid out. So expectations, a place to live, and a way to get through the conflict. Now as this ties into our life, our Jesus is our priest and our sacrifice. He's our high priest. We read about this in Hebrews 8. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. And so we have a high priest who is interceding for us when we fail. Aren't you good, glad about that? Isn't that good news? Amen. That you don't have to work out your failures on your own, that God has provided a priest, a mediator. What's a priest? A priest has taken the hand of someone who's distant from God and God's hand and connecting them together. That's what a priest does. And we are a kingdom of priests. And so you don't have to have a fancy collar. You just have to know Jesus and follow him. And you're a priest. You're trying to reach out to people who are distant from God and connect them with God. And so Jesus does that first for us because he's the only one who can pass through death and live because he is without sin. And like Robbie was saying, is like you might not feel holy. You might not feel righteous. But guess what? Your salvation is not based on how you feel. Isn't that good news? Because some days you wake up like me and you don't feel saved. You feel like an ornery cuss, right? And your wife calls you an ornery cuss and you kick your dog, right? And I mean, it's a bad day. But your your feelings don't govern your salvation. It's the righteous life of Jesus Christ that makes you right with God. So on your worst day, it's still your best day in Jesus this is good news. Somebody ought to be going like shouting hallelujah right now and like getting up and like, well, okay. Anyway, somebody's going to do that one day and I'm going to go like, all right, all right, that's enough. (laughs) Take him out. All right. So anyway, (laughs) the blood, the blood that is not, it's not, for us, it's not applied to the doorposts of our homes. You know, when Israel exited Egypt, they were to put the blood on the doorposts so the death angel didn't take their firstborn son. and So the blood had to be applied for them to be spared that death. I don't recommend you putting blood on the doorpost of your home. It'll draw flies and your neighbors will call the police. This is not a good thing to do. But what I am saying is you had better apply the blood of Christ to the doorframe of your soul. You had better have that done. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So I know you're anxious to get to the end. And we're going there. All right, we are the tabernacle where God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this to us. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Now, God's spirit does live in each believer. But what Paul is talking about here is the church. So each night, myself and I know many others are praying that Jesus would come to cornerstone so that when we walk in here on Sunday morning we feel the presence of the Lord and I'm excited and I experience that I mean legit I experience that. The first step to knowing God is to experience God and so when we come together you know I've been praying, you've been praying others have been praying Jesus will you come to church? We know the devil goes to church somewhere every Sunday, right? And, and maybe that's why you're here, <laughs> because he was somewhere else. I don't know. My point is this. Hopefully, Jesus is here, even if the devil's here. And, and, and so we have the presence of God dwelling in us. And we should take care of ourselves, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, because it's the presence of the Lord that lives within us. And so the place... The church isn't a place, the the church is people. And then there's this new expectation of relationships. One time Jesus is pressed to summarize all the law, and he says, all right, I'm going to sum it all up for you. Here's the bottom line. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is called the Shema, but Jesus adds on to it. He adds on, Jesus adds on the part, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Shema, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, he, this is something that Israel would say every day. Now, this is my prayer every morning and every night at least. Sometimes I quote the Shema m- multiple times during the day when I feel like I'm dead and like like just I'm, I'm out of alignment or, or something's really stressing me out. I'll quote, it: love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's my prayer. And like it can be that simple. But it's recentering my life in that moment. We studied a book by Scott McKnight called The Jesus Creed. And, and this is what he talks about in that book. The book is called The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight. If you want to get that and read that, I highly recommend it. But the point is that this, that, that we have an expectation for relationships with God and with one another. So we don't have ten to remember. We just got two. As a matter of fact, in John 13, I think it's verse 35, Jesus will bring it down to one. We call that the platinum, not the golden rule, but the platinum rule. It's three words: thinking, handle this, love one another. Like if you had to boil it all down, and you say, "Okay, what does God require of me? Love one another." And so this is this is the expectation for a relationship with God and with fellow, with, with with our mankind. With those exist exist exists around us. There we go. Now, how do you do that? Well, you don't. You try, but what you're going to need is the Spirit of God to live within you. and Do the heavy lifting that you can't do. Now, Israel, that's the point of the Old Testament. One of the points is that it shows over and over again how Israel failed to follow through their commitment, but the Spirit of God wasn't living in them. It was living around them and so you and I have this new hope, this new promise that Christ lives within us. And, 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 and so, it, you know, it's so important that we understand that it's not all up to us, that God does want to live with us. And Jesus says that in John 14, 23. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So Jesus equates love with obedience, not feeling. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make a home with them. So God moves back into the neighborhood in our lives. And he does that by communicating to us, here's what I expect for a relationship. Love God, love others. And and here's what I need. I need a home, and it's you. It's the church, and it's you as an individual. And the last thing is I've got a way to handle the sin, the conflict, the confrontation in our relationship. I'm going to sacrifice myself so you don't have to pay the debt. This is such good news. As I mentioned before, on the day the law came off Sinai, on the day Moses brought down the law and saw the party on the patio and all the bad things that were going on, 3,000 people died. But when Peter, the apostle of Jesus, stands up on the day of Pentecost, he preaches the first gospel sermon and 3,000 people were saved. You can't make this stuff up. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't miss it. You got to see how the Bible dovetails. There is a new commandment and a new covenant made possible through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to present this message today. There's a lot of content, and it's rich with imagery and foreshadowing. But Lord, I I pray that we would grasp at least some of it. And begin to apply it to our own spiritual journey. We love you, Lord. And we want to follow you. But we fail so many times. So, Lord, would you just step into where we're at right now in this journey? Maybe we're falling down. And and we just we need a brother or sister. Or, or maybe we're walking, but we're uncertain. It doesn't look like where we're going is the right direction. Or it might feel that it's just scary to step into... Whatever we're, whatever we're, a job, a, a school, a relationship, like it just, we're wondering, is this the right direction? So, Lord, would you enter in to whatever spot we're at in our journey with you and lead us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.